0: always find it is helpful to revisit Nehemiah because he's an excellent leader he's an excellent example about how to co-labor you know Jesus said I'm going to build the church but we co-labor with him in that and just learning from something of Nehemiah's example as we uh, are here looking to, to to establish the household of God in Colchester and beyond so as you know in the time of Nehemiah uh, the city of Jerusalem had been ransacked. The people had been scattered into exile. Nehemiah had seen Jerusalem, was devastated at the state of things there, and he determined in his heart to see the city rebuilt. So he recruited many workers to help. Uh, his job particularly was to rebuild the wall and make the city secure again. Now, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you want to turn to... Uh, Nehemiah. We're going to be working through uh, chapters 6 and 7. But in chapters 4 and 5, you'll see how the re- rebuilding of the wall was strongly opposed. So Nehemiah's enemies mocked the work. They threatened the workers. They tried to deceive and distract people from the work. Uh, internally, there was fear and fatigue and selfish behaviour that slowed the work down. And Nehemiah dealt with all of these with godly wisdom, excellent leadership, and his example has served as a, an object lesson to leaders for every generation ever since. So as I said, we're going to look at chapters 6 and 7. There's too much for... I, can't, I haven't got time to read the whole thing and go into great detail, but we're going to look in chapter 6 at how the enemy doubles down trying to use fear to bring the work to a halt and then we're going to look in chapter 7 at the significance of how Nehemiah and Isaiah and Israel completed the rebuilding in that chapter. So if you have your Bibles open in front of you, I don't want to sound old-fashioned here, I just want to say how helpful I find it to have a Bible made from paper, that is quite I'm a a massive technology fan I honestly I love you know and all of that but just I just find sometimes when you read things in your own bible it helps to place things in your mind it's always like becomes a map a grid in you and so I you know as I say please don't feel um, you know if you haven't got a paper bible with you don't feel that I'm having a go I'm not I'm just saying I find it helpful and I just want to encourage you to consider doing that and, and, uh, and learning, you know, finding your way around, how these things interconnect, where, where these things are found. And, uh, and things, so, uh, yeah, I think it's just helpful. Sometimes I find it's just almost like a map in my mind, you know, where I found these things and read these things. So I just want to encourage you to consider that. If you haven't got one, I, don't worry. I'll just, uh, just <laughs> I find it helpful. That's all, I just find it helpful. So we're gonna look at, in chapter six, we look at, at fear. So verse one, it says, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. Now these are familiar foes. If you know the story of Nehemiah, these guys pop up all the way through the story, right from the beginning. The minute they heard that Nehemiah was going to go and rebuild Jerusalem, they said, right, we're not having this. And they, find, they try trying to find every way to disrupt the work. And one of my children was asking me the other day about the Middle East conflict. And I tried to explain how this has been going on for thousands of years and is unlikely to see a human solution. When things erupt in the Middle East, it's an overspill of something that is happening in the cosmos. Because it's, it's we all know just how right at the, at the, the crux of human uh, the human story is God's interaction with the nation of Israel. And these things, every now and then, they're just sort of, uh, there's something going on in the heavenlies that bursts out into the natural realm from time to time. But, uh, you know, you're never going to get a human solution. There's never going to be a sort of a peace treaty. And my point is illustrated in this verse here, when you've got these guys sort of representing, you know, one side of the conflict, already sort of having a go at Nehemiah, between three or 4,000 years ago, or just look at, you know, if you've got your, you know, a moment later on, look at the last two verses of chapter 2 for another illustration. And so, you know, these, this conflict is going to always be with us until Jesus comes and brings it to its fulfilment. And, deno- and, you know, so this is not my church, so I'm not going to say much more about that, except to say, because, you know, it can become a quite a controversial subject. But the difference for us today under the new covenant is that as much as we long for all Israel to be saved, and we do, we also long for all Palestinians to be saved. And this is, you know, this is, you know the flesh and blood are not the enemy, but here we've got Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem as ever doing a masterful job stirring up fear and intimidation in Nehemiah's camp. How do they do that in this instance? Well, in verse 5, they send an unsealed letter to Nehemiah. That's cracking. I love this. You And know, it, it, it contains baseless and scandalous rumours that Nehemiah was going to make himself king of Israel and rebel against the king. Now, an unsealed letter in these days is the equivalent of social media today. It's a private message that everybody can read, (laughs) oh, there's no seal on it, oh, you know, it's like, you know, it's open for everybody, in fact, if you read this narrative, Nehemiah's enemies are constantly sending him letters to intimidate him, it goes on and on and on, and in verse 10, we see how Nehemiah's enemies invent stories about people wanting to kill Nehemiah, and they try to coerce him, to go and hide in the temple, which was a disreputable thing to do. And it would have discredited Nehemiah's good name. They could have damaged his reputation if they said, come on, they're going to kill you, but hide in the temple, you'll be safer." He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. They were trying to destroy his reputation some way, somehow. And his response is brilliant, and it contains... I've got a lot of all-time favourite verses in my Bible, but this is one of my all-time, all-time favourite verses in the Bible. Okay, So he appraises the situation and uh, concludes in, in verse 9 of chapter 6. You know, They're, they're trying to frighten us. They're, they're all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But his response, actually you read it in verse 8, drum roll, I love this. Nothing like what you are saying is happening, you are just making it up out of your head. <laughs> I, just, I mean, this guy's a senior state official, you know? You'd expect a sort of a statesman-like response. But this is more like the sort of thing you say in the school playground, <laughs> isn't it, you know? Yeah, you're making it up out of your head. <laughs> but that's sometimes how we have to think. We have, we've got to learn how to think. What is right and what is wrong? What is true and what is false? And Nehemiah figured figure this out. No, you're saying that it is not true. You are making it up. You just, you just, you just pulled it out of your head. There's nothing to do with the truth. We have got to learn how to think like this. And Nehemiah is just a brilliant example to us. And the reason for this is that words are powerful. And this this chapter is all about words. It's about written words. Oh, you know, how can he say that? How can he say that I'm trying to rebel against the king? Or whispered rumours. Oh, they're going to try and kill you. They are going to try and kill you. Come and hide over here. Powerful whispered rumours, written letters. They have power to get into our head and get into our heart. How many of us can remember words that have wounded us? They've shaped us even. They've intimidated us, or limited us, or sown fear in our heart. A friend had a very broken relationship with his father, who used to write him letters to constantly criticize him. And my friend kept all of these letters in his attic. Even after his father had died, he kept these letters. I said, burn them for goodness sake. Get, you know, we can, we can rehearse and almost cherish hurtful things that people have said to us over the years. Okay? We cannot get it out of our head. And we cannot get it out of our heart. It's so toxic. And I want to appeal to you today, just as Nehemiah had to deal with it here, are you in any way bent out of shape by words whispered or written by others who did not have the best intention for you in their hearts? Okay? An old Welsh, you're going to get my very bad Welsh accent now, just forewarning you, okay? An old Welsh firebrand preacher friend said to me once. Don't listen to people who don't listen to God, You would say. <laughs> Sounded a bit African, but it was, it was, it was actually worse. <laughs> don't listen to people who don't listen to God. How many of us are shaped by words that are spoken by people who didn't care about us at all? Or said something careless, unintentional, but it got you. And now you've put a lid on yourself. You disqualify yourself or limit yourself because you've given authority to a word that did not come from the heart of God. This is really important, folks. The enemy uses words like weapons. He twists them. He sows lies in our hearts. He makes you doubt yourself. He makes you doubt others around you. I've been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years. I cannot count the number of people I have encountered who have been damaged or limited by words that they have taken to heart that have not come from God. The truest things you will ever know about yourself are written in God's word. You've got to take God's word for it. You've got to find the God-breathed antidote to the words that have bound you or wounded you, and it's all in here. It's all in here. Husbands and wives, be ever so careful how you use your words with your spouse. Careless words can go very deep. Parents, be ever so careful how you use your words with your children as the twig is bent so the tree grows. Careless words in childhood can shape your child into adulthood. So don't allow the words of others to have more authority in your life than the words of God. That's the byword. That's, that's where it stops. More so, don't allow your own words to have more authority than the words of God. This is, you've got to be careful here sometimes. You know, God says, oh, I love you. You know, you're my dearly beloved, and you're sitting there saying, yeah, but you don't really know what I'm really like, you know, what I've done. You know, as if God, you know, God says, oh, goodness me, I didn't know that. That was a bit of a shock. Why didn't anybody ever tell me? You know, you should have told me that sooner. I wouldn't have said those things if I'd have known that about you, you know. And we can, disc- we can sit there saying, yeah, but God, you know, I can't receive those words because I know better well man you've got to be very careful (laughs) you've got to be very careful if you find yourself in that space when people are praying and prophesying over you they're praying the truth of God's word over you and part of you is rejecting it and saying no I don't receive it you know I know what I've done I know what I'm really like God if only you knew he does know (laughs) you know the reason you have got to be careful there is because you're giving your own words more authority than the words of God now, who's God in that situation? You know, suddenly you put yourself on a little pedestal. Yeah, well, you, God might say that, but I know better. You know, i my own. It's, it's a form of self-idolatry, actually. Vanity. I got this. I was a very, I was a cripplingly shy young man. I was cripplingly shy. I, you know, I used to. When I first came to church, I was in my late teens. I used to sit there. I dared turn round in my seat because I thought everybody's looking at me, you know. And and I think what Did I think I was some sort of I don't know what was that? What was that? What was my problem? You know. And it, it was almost as if you know I had uh, vanity and shyness um, can be at the heart of um, a sense of self-idolatry. It's like me. Thinking, I'm the center of everybody's attention here. Everybody's looking at me. They're all thinking about me. What they're all saying about me. Well, don't worry about it, because they're all worry about the same thing for themselves. <laughs> Everybody else is worrying about what everybody's thinking and, and saying about themselves, so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> you know, we would worry less what other people think of us if we realized how little they think of <laughs> I not I really mean that one. Was... <laughs> but it was, also, it was a, self of, a form of self idolatry that I put myself right in the you know, oh, uh, you know. We, I, I don't know if I'm connected with anybody here on this. It's just that we need to break these things. We need to break this sense of disempowering the words of God because if we're so doing, we're empowering the words of others. We're empowering the words of people that have spoken over our lives, authority figures, parents, uh, teachers, people in the playground even, you know, whatever. And we're disempowering. We're not giving the authority to the words of God. And, and, and we can end up, Making idols out of. A... There's another reason why I think we find it hard to let go of some words. And the reason is it, to let someone said something in your life that has wounded you and you haven't let it go. The reason you haven't let it go, let's be honest, is because to let the word go, you have to let the person go. And you, secretly, you want them to get their comeuppance. <laughs> you want some justice here. God, I can't just let that person off the hook. They said that and it wounded me. Well, you cannot get rid of those words until you let that person off the hook. Mm. That's forgiveness. You know, and you've probably heard me say before, or or others, you know, unforgiveness is like drinking poison hoping the other person will die. You know, you live with the poison, the other person's just oblivious. (laughs) So you want, if you want to let go of these words that have wounded you, you've got to let go of the person. You've got to forgive them. And that's why I think people find it hard sometimes to let go of the words, because it's almost like we've let them off the hook. It's a big trap, folks. Don't get stuck there. <clears throat> Jesus himself says in Matthew 4, doesn't he, he's, been, he's got the in-person temptation of the devil and he says, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, friends, if as, as I say these things, I pray you, you are receiving it from a heart of tender concern. I'm not here saying, you know, I'm not trying to say, you know, who do you think you are, silly old thing, you should do this, you know, no. I'm concerned. I want you to, you to fulfil your full potential in God. It's our job as elders to present you mature before Christ, and it's your job to present me mature, mature before Christ. At the same time, I want you to fulfil your full potential in God because there's a reward waiting for us. Now, you know, those of us, we rejoice in the grace of God and we preach the grace of God. We don't always lean into the fact that actually... Our reward in heaven is contingent on our obedience in this life. Our salvation depends entirely on the perfect obedience of Christ. Hallelujah. Okay. We couldn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It's a free gift from heaven. Jesus made a way. His perfect obedience has secured your eternal destiny. Hallelujah. However, the Bible also says that we're called to the obedience of faith. And we are rewarded according to our obedience. They think, well, how does that work, Morris? Well, it's in the Bible. (laughs) Read it there. Our work will be tested by fire. And some of us will suffer loss, the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And it says, you know, they will be saved, but you'll be smelling of smoke. (laughs) Because what you've given your time to has been burned up because it wasn't the obedience of faith. So it's so important. Now that we've been saved... You know, Paul said, "I came to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles." He said, "That's why. I've, that's why." You know, he didn't. You know, we're here now to serve his cause. You know, and there's a, there's a, a bit of a, a weak gospel. I won't go so far as say it's false. I'd say it's weak. It is false, but I, 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 I'm in my cuddly pastor mode. That <laughs> that that says, you know, come to Jesus and you'll make all your dreams come true. I hear that gospel a lot. I hear it a lot in, in yeah. You know, oh, your dreams, God, if you... And I was really helped on this matter by a sermon I heard my daughter preach about the fact that that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't come to God and you'll make all your dreams come true. The gospel is come to God and he will create a new heart in you and he will put desires and ambitions in your heart that glorify him that he will then fulfil. It's a, it's a very different gospel because he didn't save us so he could uphold our cause. I know we sing that sometimes. And I think, you know, and it, and it is, there is a truth in the fact that he will uphold our justice, our just cause. But actually, he saved us so that we would up, uphold his cause. He saved us so that we'll serve to his glory. And we'll see his renown magnified here and around the world. That's why he saved us. That's what, well, that's why we're still here. He saved us so he could enjoy us for all eternity. He's left us here because he's got a job for us to do. You know, we could be with him now. Hallelujah. Paul says that, you know, I'd love to be there now. But no, I'm here for a purpose. And we've got to understand, what is it that God's got for us? What is the fruit-bearing mission God has given us in this world? You know, John 15, 16. You didn't choose him, he chose you. And he appointed you to bear fruit that will endure. What is, what is the fruit-bearing mission that God has for your life? Don't be seduced by ideas that people who appear to have more impressive uh, ministry roles in life will be more rewarded. That's not, that's not how it works. How it works is the love language of heaven is obedience. And we get rewarded according to the obedience of what God has called us to. It doesn't impress God that someone might have a big platform ministry and he wears you know, a white suit and everybody goes, oh, he's a man of power. Is he anointing on him? That doesn't impress God. He can do it without us, he doesn't need us. What impresses God is, Is that man be obedient to the call of God on his life? And it's exactly the same measure he'll use for every one of you and me. Have you heard from God? What has he called you to? Are you be obedient? Now, it could be that you're being obedient to a very big, high-profile ministry. Well, God protect you. That's a really, really hard world to live in and to walk with, uh, you know, honour and integrity. Has he called you to some hidden way of serving God? We will be measured by your obedience. Do you hear what I'm saying here? Because I think this is really important. We, we, we tend to measure things in a certain way that I don't think God measures them. We think, oh, that person's impressive. Look at that amazing ministry that person has. And, and you, you imagine that they'll have a seat closer to God in heaven. We're going to be very surprised how God rewards people in heaven because it's not at all based on how impressive our ministry is. It's entirely based on have you been obedient to what God has called you to. So you need to, you need to explore What is the call of God on your life? Uh, That was nothing that I had in my notes whatsoever. When are are we supposed to finish? Five to twelve. Five to twelve. Oh, loads of time. Okay. Okay, there's more I could say. I'd love to talk more about fear. Fear is one of the most debilitating challenges for the believer to overcome. And I think today, for the Christian, in in our context, in in 21st century Western Europe, the enemy is pulling every lever he can to sow fear in the hearts of the followers of God. And uh, today I've just focused on how he uses words to disarm us. Don't let him do it. But now let's have a look at uh, just an overview of chapter 7, even if just for a few minutes, just reflecting on Nehemiah's astonishing achievement in leading the people of God to complete the rebuilding of the wall. So you see, uh, in the first few verses, he describes how the wall has been rebuilt and then for much of the rest of the chapter, he talks about all the people that were involved and all the people that came back. It's beautiful how everybody gets named here. <coughs> we're not faceless individuals in the kingdom of, of heaven. Okay? Every name is precious to God. I love it, the fact that you know, it's not like, oh, we we're all just drain pipes for the Lord. You know, no, no, actually your names are here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it matters to God who we are, what we do, what our part is. Um <coughs> He's Nehemiah is rebuilding something. <clears throat> now the significance of that is that it, it already it was it was being built, and now it needed to be rebuilt. Something there's a pattern. He's building to a pattern. This is a very powerful motive, a motive for us today. Jesus said, "I will build my church," and through the first order of apostles, he gave insight and revelation that had not been given before on how this was to be done. And this is really, really important for us today. If you've got your Bibles there, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm just going to read some verses that are incredibly important to understand our whole hermeneutic of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, how we understand the Old Testament in the light of the New New Testament. How do we put these things together? Because the first order apostles and prophets that we that, that, you know, got a lot of their writings in the New Testament, they, were, they had things revealed to them that had not been previously revealed. That's so important to get our head around there. So if, Ephesians 3, verses 4 to 6, he says this, in reading this then, you will be able to understand, this is Paul speaking, you, oh, thank you, you will be able to, <laughs> there's a man, there's a preacher who knows what I'm saying. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This is why the New Testament is so important to us. The Old Testament is important, but it's not a balanced hermeneutic. Some people have a sort of balanced Old Testament, New Testament hermeneutic. No. You know, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. (laughs) Very important. It's now been revealed by God's spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. So Jesus and his apostles have left witness through the New Testament of how to build to simple and authentic new covenant apostolic DNA. In the writings of these first order apostles we read about healthy, vibrant New Testament church life shaped by the word of God, full of the grace of God, empowered by the spirit of God. Churches led by teams of servant-hearted leaders working together with all the five-fold ministries in Ephesians 4. Local churches committed to mission locally and globally looking to contextualize the gospel in order to impact every arena of culture this is the simple pattern that Jesus left for his followers but over the centuries this pattern has often become obscured by accumulated traditions extra biblical practices human weakness and frequent failure and part of our conviction and throughout our history in our movement of churches, which is called New Frontiers, and relational mission is, is under the umbrella of New Frontiers, if you like, we have sought to outwork a very simple set of mission objectives. We want to restore the church. We want to rebuild the church to the pattern that Jesus has handed down to us. We want to sort of sweep it all off the table and say, Right, here's the Bible. What is it that God wants? How does Jesus want his church to be ordered? Okay, here we go. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, deacons. Let's get it all in. That's what we want. A church that rejoices in the grace of God, that gathers around the word of God, that enjoys the presence of God. Let's do that. That's what we're trying to do here. We're building to a pattern here. It's really important. You need to know that. You know, it's not free for all. i say that gently. It's not free for all here. The elders are clear. We know what we're building here. We've got a pattern. And um, sometimes people will come along with another pattern. And I want to say I got a bit told off for saying this when I preached about it previously. But because, you know, I think you know, sometimes if, if there's people in the church who are trying to say, no, we should be doing something different. Well, you have to sort of bring some adjustment and correction to that. But if there are people who are trying to come, trying to come into the church and saying we should we should be doing something, we should be building to a different pattern. It could be just an emphasis or a priority or uh, you know, a different approach to some things. I'm not gonna argue with them and say you're wrong. I am gonna say, no, we're building to this pattern. <laughs> so let me help you find someone who's building to that pattern, all right? Because you'll be blessed there. You'll be a blessing to them and you'll be blessed. But if you try and bring that in here, you'll get frustrated because we're clear, this is what we're building, this is how we're building. And you're saying, yeah, but you know, I could give some examples, I, I don't want to distract you, but you know, people that come in and you think, oh, okay, well, that's perfectly worthy, and I'm not saying that's wrong, it's just not what, it, that's just not our conviction at this time, this is what we're building, this is our pattern. And we've got to be able to say that, and not, you know, not in a way that, damn, I don't want to go around telling everybody you would disagree with me, so you must be a heretic. Who knows that, who's, who knows that we've got it all right? You know, none, of us are, none of us own the Bible. None of us own Revelation. There's things I know today that I didn't know 20 years ago. Was I a heretic 20 years ago? No, I've grown. I've learned some things. You know, I'm not going to get into pick fights with people just because they don't agree with me. But you know, if there's something, a first order issue, you know, we don't believe in the Trinity or something, oh man, you know, I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> but if you just say, oh, maybe we should put our emphasis here or our priority there, say, okay, well, that is great. I'm not saying you're wrong. It's just not what we're doing. So let's help you find somewhere where you can be happy. Yeah? Yeah. That makes sense? Well, my daughter, Reese, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) So we're restoring the church. We're making disciples. It's our first and principal commission from Jesus. You're not here as an attender. You're here as someone that we want to shape up to your full potential in Christ. And uh, that's what we're helping each other do together very important it's you know we've got one job to do training leaders entrusting this to those who are entrustable that's that beautiful verse from Paul isn't it what you've learned from me entrust to those who are able to train others this is a multi-generational effort we're stewards of something very precious I feel you know in the grace of God you know 50 years ago he was not a found churches like this that had the freedom that we have um, and through some very brave uh, generation or two of men and women, they've broken open things for us. That we can, we can go back to the simple New Testament principles and outwork our church life in this way. And so now we are stewards of that. It's been, we've been entrusted with that. And we now need to carry this and to train others who are entrustable, who are going to be able to do this when we're long gone. And that's the the importance of training leaders, planting churches, being fruitful and multiply, reaching nations, remembering the poor. This is our sort of apostolic mandate, if you like. So we're building to a pattern here in Colchester, restoring the church, hoping to see many saved and discipled for godly purpose. Not for our cause, as I said, but to serve his cause. You know, when we're saved, our appetites change, the things of this world grow strangely dim. Not, not in it for this anymore. Yeah. No, I'm in it for his glory. I want to, 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 to fulfil Jesus' ambitions. Not because he needs me, but because he wants me to be part of his story. It's beautiful. Privilege. Our petty goals and ambitions are tasteless to us. You know, next to serving the ambitions of the king. So, uh, earlier this month, I was with Rachel at a gathering of of uh, it was a a global gathering of apostles. It was in Cyprus, representing thousands of churches around the world, all building to the same pattern. It's absolutely brilliant. How do we work out this simple apostolic DNA in every culture and nation and language? So we're clear. What we're building here, Nehemiah was rebuilding to a pattern. And uh, you know, I was I was speaking with a leader whose church has multiplied three or four times in recent years. They've sent out pioneering mission teams every year for ten years that have gone to plant churches in other towns and nations. Oh, I want some of that. I want some of that for you. I want you to be part of the thrill of that. You know, we're not here trying to just sort of um, we want to we want to shepherd people well, but in order to equip them and send them. You know, I mean we love you all here, but we also want to send you (laughs) send you into the workplace, send you where you have access and influence that we wouldn't as leaders have. You know, you measure a friend of mine says, you measure a church not by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. So, you know, we're looking to see this reproduced across many nations. So as I said, Rachel and I've just returned from Sweden. Working with teams of leaders in Sweden and Germany and the Netherlands. Uh, Between now and Christmas, uh, I'll be in Croatia, Slovakia, Ukraine, Hungary, Spain, trying to do exactly what you're doing here. Not copy pasting, it's got to be contextualized in the culture. This is one of the mistakes, you know, sometimes. It's not about, okay, I want to take Redeemer Church Colchester and reproduce it in Slovakia. No, I want to take this simple New Testament DNA that you're building to, the pattern you're building to, and I want to say to guys in Slovakia, let's build to this pattern, and you figure out what that looks like in Slovakia. I can't tell you, you know, don't borrow my songs, write your own songs, you know. Um, Don't feel you have to do it our way, you know. But we're gonna meet opposition. The enemy will try to oppose you through all means that we just talked about here. But God's kingdom will ever increase. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is our coming king, and he is our friend and deliverer. He will be with us to the ends of the age. We're members of his own household here. He's responsible for us. Who do you want to have responsible for your household? I will have God. As for me and my household, we'll serve him. And he's going to care for my household We're ambassadors here of a new nation, one new man from every tongue, tribe and nation. And he's going to return and he's going to demonstrate his justice to all people for all time. And then we will be with him forever. And this life is just a taster for what is to come. So serve God here to store up your reward and treasure in the life to come. Yeah. And the life to come is going to last a lot longer than your life here. I hope you realise that. You know, if Christ is not able to raise us from the dead, we are fools, the Bible says. It's not about this life. You know. Beautiful to think, isn't it? This is just the first whisper, the first echo of real life is coming. So I'm going to pray for you now. But I, Do you have a ministry team? Do you do that? I don't know. You can. Okay, I just want to pray for two groups of people today. You know, I just want to, I want to pray for, for those of you here that know that one day God is going to call you to go for the sake of the mission of God. Not for lifestyle, not for a job move, but you know that this is a time of preparation for you. One day God is going to, going to send you somewhere. All right. Now, i include including that people that maybe God has sent here. Maybe you come from another culture, another context, and He's brought you here for purpose, a time of preparation that one day you're going to go and do something for the mission of God somewhere. Now, elders always get nervous when I when I do this, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's on your vision statement, so it's okay. <laughs> I feel safe. I just, want to, just, I just want to pray briefly, it might not be many of you, but those of you, you know God is preparing you to go on mission, or he's brought you here for mission, just stand where you are, and we're just going to pray for you. So, if that's you, stand where you are. Oh, we've got some work to do here, Hugh, there's only one that's going, oh there's, oh, there's another one, here we go, oh, they're standing up there, here we go, that's all right. Oh, praise God, praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let's just reach out our hands where you are to these people. Just reach out. I'm just going to pray for them. Thank you, God, for, for courage to um, to make a step and say, God, here I'm here. I'm here for godly purpose. And for me, that means that one day I'll be going. Yeah. Lord, some of us are called to stay and build. Some of us are called to go and break open new ground. And so, Lord, for those here that are called to go. We honour them now. We say, look, hey, we want to go with you, okay? Don't go out the back door. Don't just drift off. But know that we want to go. It matters to us that we help you shape this journey so that we can support you well, so that you can outwork this call because it's, it's hard to go in these days. It's, it's challenging to go. And we want to make sure we support you in every way we possibly can. So I pray now, Lord, just seal in people's hearts this moment of sober declaration of the heart. Oh God, I'm here. I don't know what it means. I don't even know necessarily where that takes me. But I'm making myself available to you, God. And I, I commend you or I say please make yourself known to the elders. There's things we can do next year. We're running our call to go group for the whole of our movement, people who are called to go. It does exactly what it says on the tin, mentoring, equipping, helping